Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to be for this bill to be implemented and implemented in a way that really favors active transportation, um, bike infrastructure, and all these goals that we have to lower emissions, increase participation in biking, and to like, you know, dramatically reduce road deaths and injuries for VRUs. Welcome to the bike lane. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. With us today is Noah Bunyan, People for Bikes Director of Federal Affairs. Noah works on the bike industry's federal affairs portfolio, covering everything that affects the bike industry through federal policy. Noah and her team work on infrastructure, transportation, and road safety policy, recreation access on public lands, trade and tariffs, and recently incentives for bikes via tax policy. We're going to be covering what's hot regarding the implementation of the bipartisan infrastructure law and the future of our bike and e-bike policies. Noah, welcome to the show. So great to have you. Thanks for having me, Jake. Great to be here. So before we dive in, we have a lot to talk about. Can you first talk to uh, talk to a little bit about what, what is People for Bikes? What is PFB? A little bit, just a little bit of high level. Uh, a lot of our listeners out there come from auto and infrastructure. And while most of us ride bikes, some people may not know who you guys are. Yeah, I uh, would be happy to. So People for Bikes is both a national trade association for the bicycle industry in the United States and an advocacy organization Um, working to make every bike ride better um, across the country. Um, We represent more than 300 bicycle businesses and brands um, across the U.S., some global. Um, And we have a foundation that runs a lot of programming um, with youth, with cities, with data. um, All of that goes towards making biking better. Very cool. And I I could tell you that in my experience, it's awesome having this what we could like to call pre-competitive area where we can get all of the, the, the cycling organizations all on the same page. And, and we've just had uh, just a tremendous experience at Tome working with a lot of your members and the organization itself. It, it's been great to get that level of support and we're really happy to, uh, to have this conversation and kind of hear, hear what's new. So how has to date or historically has PFB been involved within safety initiatives and policy? So we were founded, People for Bikes was founded um, some 20 years ago with a mission to bring the bike industry together um, to advocate for bike infrastructure. And true to our core since that founding, we've been positioning infrastructure safe, connected, protected, and separated places to ride bikes um, as core to the goal of safety. Um, And so we prioritize funding and implementation of bike infrastructure above all else, um, which is why right now is such an exciting time to be talking about bikes and bike safety. Um, But on top of that, there's more than just the concrete barriers that we're asking for to separate people on bikes from people in cars. Um, There's research that needs to go into vulnerable road users and where they are and sometimes why they aren't there. And we've been supporting that through advocacy at the federal level for funding on research, as well as programs that dedicate funding to states um, who need help building out better infrastructure and protecting folks outside of cars as they move through their communities. Um, And so there's some specifics that we can talk about in the infrastructure bill dedicated towards that kind of funding too. 
Love it. Love it. And there it is, the vulnerable road user, the VRU, uh, one of the hottest acronyms on on Capitol Hill and in, in Detroit as, uh, as we're mm-hmm. talking about smart cities and smart streets and smart lamps. And, um, you know, sometimes it feels like a smart toaster, but we're working to bring this in. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about that kind of separation. And it's it's important, I think, to note that for cyclists and other forms of uh, micromobility and even runners to some respect. I mean, we're, we're on the sidewalk sometimes. Uh, we're on these paved bike paths. Sometimes we're in the bike lane. Uh, and other times we're in the left-hand turn lane turning left. So you mentioned about how important that infrastructure is. And, and that's something that you mentioned is, is a big part of where PFB has been focusing efforts. I, I'm curious about uh, as you guys think about, and you mentioned about the priority of infrastructure, it's more than just folks pouring concrete now, right? I mean, we're talking about multiple stakeholders in this in this ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. There's the simplicity of it and that a concrete barrier is some of the best technology out there to keep riders safe, but it gets it's obviously more than that. Working at Tome, you know that really well, that technology is one of the tools that we can use to leverage Uh, making biking safer and making it easier for everyone. And so it's everything from the infrastructure workers on the ground pouring concrete to the planners and and making sure that folks in your cities understand um, that they're not building for the people who are already biking, um, but they're building for the people who aren't there yet. And not just biking, like you said, for scooting and other forms of micromobility and shared micromobility, for running, for strollers and wheelchairs and everything else that basically lets you move um, and have some independence outside of driving a car um, is is really the infrastructure that we're advocating for. And so, you know, one of the best things about working at People for Bikes is all the great people I get to work with in our coalition space with advocacy is, you know, it's not just the bike people at the table. It's it's all of those user groups and advocacy groups and mobility interests coming together um, for the sake of better infrastructure. Amen to that. I, I, just could not agree more on on bringing people together to the same table. And uh, it, when I first got into this space about five years ago, it, it definitely felt like there was some adversarial vibes where it was like cars versus bikes. And um, and at that time, the scooters weren't really out there. Uh, so it was mm-hmm. like it, it, it's really progressed quite a bit where it's like, hey, we got to share the road and share the infrastructure. And I mean, even even as a uh, as a uh, sports cyclist myself, it's like I uh, yesterday even I was riding north in a bike lane and there was a a young man uh, on an e-scooter going up. And, you know, you got to get to give a little bit of distance and and share the bike lane. So it's not just Mm -hmm. sharing the road. It's it's sharing the bike lane. And with the amount of traffic that we have, I mean, in Michigan, we we joke there's like two seasons, uh, winter and construction. (laughs) There was uh, like all the construction traffic got poured onto this lane and. Uh, you know, I, w- I was really happy. It kind of brought a smile on my face that like I'm I'm behind an e-scooter going, I guess, maybe 12, 14 miles an hour. And that was totally cool. And like, I feel like that's something that we're all really open to having that conversation. And obviously, there are a lot of challenges around accessibility and inclusion that need to be there. And we can't just be focusing on technologies for the affluent. But I, I love your comment earlier about you know concrete can be one of the the best best uh, uh, and most most significant options. So I I, do, I would like to kind of get your your thoughts before we shift over a little bit to what's going on on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. The historically, 
people for bikes has mostly been about the rider, like, you know, from the history of people for bikes, but it sounds like now there's kind of been more of a shift for include, including infrastructure and vehicle conversations. Is that something that you're seeing as a trend that's going to continue forward post pandemic? I hope so. Um, I mean, I think that's just the way of the future is understanding that we can't operate in a silo as the bike industry, because we're working on public infrastructure that supports more than just people on bikes. Um, mm. we, we work with, um, you know, bike share and scooter share interests. We're working more, more and more with car companies who want to get involved in the bike and mobility space who are funding some really fantastic infrastructure work and research. Um, and, and so I think looking forward, what the focus for policy in our space and on Capitol Hill is, is obviously funding. That's the name of the game um, always. And it will continue to be because states need dollars to build that infrastructure. But the coalition behind um, the support for all of that kind of funding for transportation alternatives program, the largest source of fund, federal funding for bike infrastructure is really growing. Um, and we're getting more involved too with like electrical, electric vehicle interests and, and EV subsidies and charging, um, you know, as that becomes a policy movement too, is, is how to the federal government fund EV charging. Um, we're at the table and that's really exciting one to be recognized that um, electric micromobility like e-bikes are, are part of that transportation conversation in a serious way. Um, but we're also no, you know, the, the bike advocates are no longer, I think, I hope, shouting just at the car folks saying that um, it's all their fault because it's the design, it's the system. It's, it's, mm -hmm. yeah, we need to work together towards a better system and a better design that includes all people trying to move and obviously gives some prioritization to folks deciding to move in a way that makes them more vulnerable, but also helps lower emissions, increase efficiency, lower congestion, all of that good stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen that as well in the industry where everyone's just looking at ways to have more safety, get there faster. And, and in many cases, now in the suburbs, the fastest way to get from A to B is is on two wheels, not four. And and by no means are we trying to replace anything that's going on with, with vehicles, whether they be commercial vehicles, um, including folks like Lyft and Uber. But uh, a lot of this is just around that participation. And mm -hmm. I think it's a perfect segue to talk about like what's up in DC. So mm -hmm. everybody, I, I'm sure everyone, all of our listeners know about the infrastructure bill and there's bajillions of dollars that are going to be spent on um, uh, something. So what, what are we, what are we, I guess, from a PFB perspective, what are we seeing from the bill? Uh, who are some of the great allies we've seen for, bikes and more generally VRUs and like, what's, what's the latest? I mean, there, I know that there's been quite a bit of movement and discussion in recent months on this, but curious to hear like what the latest is and, and what we should be expecting. Yeah, no, that's a great segue to focus into where the infrastructure bill is now. So, right, they passed a bill and all this funding happened and it was glorious and merry and bike lanes were had everywhere. It's not exactly the case. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to be for this bill to be implemented and implemented in a way that really favors active transportation, um, bike infrastructure, and all these goals that we have to lower emissions, increase participation in biking, and to like 
you know, dramatically reduce road deaths and injuries for VRUs. Um, so that's where there's still so much advocacy that needs to be done beyond just passing the bill. So what we're looking at at People for Bikes, along with many of our partners in the local, state, and federal advocacy space, um, is, the, is the guidance that's coming from the Department of Transportation mainly, going to states and um, municipal planning organizations, MPOs, and cities, and localities um, on one, like, here's the funding and how you get it. Here's how we recommend you use it and some parameters for like what gets more access to funding or gets weighted more heavily in that access to that funding, whether it's formula or grant. Um, and so what we're specifically tracking is guidance that recently came out for transportation alternatives. Like I mentioned, that's the largest source of federal funding for biking and walking infrastructure, um, which DOT recently released. Um, there will be guidance coming soon on complete streets planning. Um, and actually, um, the Department of Transportation did recently share sort of a high-level calendar of when to expect guidance on certain programs that um, maybe if there's show notes, we could link to in there for folks. Um, and I don't have it in front of me, but there's, you know, every program that we were so excited to have authorized and funded in the infrastructure bill now has to go through this guidance and implementation phase. And that's where advocacy at the state and local level is really critical, because now is your chance as an advocate to weigh in on where that funding goes, which projects get prioritized, you know, what missing connections in your bike infrastructure network are needed, what safety features do your streets in your community not have and how can they get them through this federal funding, whether it's the Highway Safety Improvement Program, TA, like I mentioned, Complete Streets funding, um, and, and more that we're hoping to get funded through the appropriations process, like the Active Transportation um, Infrastructure Investment Program is another one specifically focused on, on funding the construction of um, complete bike networks, not just a bike lane here and a bike lane there, but how do we like actually connect folks to essential services? That program was authorized in the infrastructure bill. So it was like given a bucket. It just they didn't put any money in that bucket. So now we're looking at the appropriations process as a way mm -hmm. to put money in that bucket. Um, but so that's, that's really where we're focused right now is the implementation, ensuring that local Advocates and planners and city officials have the resources they need to prioritize the right kind of projects. And People for Bikes isn't necessarily telling them which projects exactly, but, you know, prioritizing like how bike projects are going to help them meet so many other goals that these cities and communities have for um, emissions reductions, equity and mobility, economic recovery, and all of the good things that come that we know come when you just increase your bike network. It's a lot. So there, there's a lot there to uh, certainly unpack and more than we have time on, mm -hmm. on today's show uh, across the board, at least for the, for the, for our folks listening, definitely a lot of interest in, in prioritization. So how does PFB prioritize the efforts? Oh, I have to ask myself every morning, where, where am I prioritizing my time on this advocacy level? But um Again, everything that has to do with getting more and better and protected and connected infrastructure on the ground is our highest priority. Um, and so anything that we can do to advance that is like mission number one. And how do we do that equitably and sustainably is, mm -hmm. is absolutely critical to that mission. 
Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I think that there's a great point you made earlier about these like missing connections. So in order to have a system, and you mentioned it's a systems approach, mm-hmm. there, there has to be the ability yeah. for people, all VRUs, including scooters and pedestrians, not just bikes, to be able to get from A to B. And it, it does feel like, and as a, as a cycling commuter myself, we have a, a massive freeway called 696 that separates where I live in Ferndale from our Royal Oak office. It's three miles from my home to the office, but I, I'm doing this crazy zigzag and it, it's super sketchy and there's no easy way to take um, uh, Woodward Avenue, which for the car people know that's like one of the original roads for cars, uh, M1, and it, uh, where the annual Woodward Dream Cruise happens. And there's a green cruise as well with bikes, uh, but it, it's like there, there's no simple way in what I would say uh, – it's safe, but lot, there's a lot of tension just to get from one city to the next. And I feel like they're like, that's the sort of thing that certainly concrete can take care of. So it's like, you kind of like, you have to do all these at the same time. So part of this is pouring concrete and putting in like the right physical infrastructure you can, you know, like ride on. But then there's another part of this, which is around that education or the technology that enables once that route is there to be safe. Uh, I'm curious around, do, do you feel like there's any gaps within DC and it's maybe within Pete Buttigieg at the USDOT? I don't know if this is NHTSA or Federal Highway, but do you feel like there are some gaps where this has to be balanced and every company in the industry clearly comes at it from their lane, pun intended, but are there some gaps across the whole from USDOT that you're seeing that we really need to be focusing in on to like allow all of these different priorities to like be appropriate. So one doesn't go too far ahead of the other, like the proverbial cart before the horse or the concrete before the bike or the bike before the concrete. I think um, it's a great way to phrase it. The The biggest gaps that I would, um, I would say exist right now at DOT are more, the focus there is so heavily on replacing internal combustion engine cars and car trips to electric vehicle cars and car trips. Um, which is important because that's going to have the highest impact if you're looking about what causes um, emissions at the largest scale, which is a little bit different from safety, but I'll I'll loop back to it. Um, If you're looking at what causes the most amount of emissions, it's transportation in the U.S. That's nearly a third of our emissions output. Um, And the majority of that comes from passenger vehicles. So they're looking at, you know, what's the largest bucket that we can affect, which makes sense. But there's less um, consideration given to mode shift and how do we leverage our infrastructure resources to incentivize more folks to choose ways to move that aren't in a car. And that's where we get into the issue of VRUs, where if we're only focusing on what makes it easier to purchase and ride and charge your electric vehicle, which is important and critical to, you know, our overall safety and climate missions, um, there's just not enough credence being given right now to the ability of walking and biking and scooting and transit to replace a lot of those trips mm-hmm. um, and to do so sustainably without, you know, a multi-thousand pound battery that's still in a car that could still do damage to a VRU, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so when we're looking at it from an infrastructure perspective, where we are been pushing DOT and what we'd like to see more of is is incentivizing via funding um, ways that make that mode shift 
safer and easier for folks to choose because we know the biggest barrier to getting on a bike and what I would assume a scooter similar is the perception of safety. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's more tools than just concrete to do that. You know, your, your, your program and software is a great way to promote safety and make sure that folks feel in control of their safety um, when they're moving outside of a car and alongside cars. Um, but that focus on mode shift seems to be one of the biggest gaps. That said, I do want to give credit where credit is due at DOT. They have been really focused on some kinds of paradigm shifts with their safe systems approach. National Roadway Safety Strategy is the the, the title for it that they announced last month, I think. Um, and it's as we're implementing the infrastructure bill, how are we looking at everything from a system standpoint? And how are we taking a safe systems approach so that the design, the funding that the Department of Transportation is giving out to states is going towards designs that are going to support a safe system? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's understanding there will be errors, but the errors themselves will be mitigated by the design itself. Love it. And I, I definitely believe that that sort of approach is going to literally pave the way for <laughs> more biking, scootering, and um, just more experiences where people can can get from, from A to B with uh, less vulnerability and less perceived vulnerability. Because mm-hmm. uh, as you mentioned, and I got a, I got a plus one that, they, they are a little bit separate. And, and then unfortunately, there's a lot of times where people are more vulnerable than what they might actually think that they are mm-hmm. and um, an, an area that we're really looking into. Uh, good, good discussion point to talk about batteries and charging and emissions. Once we have all these connections made for safe and, and perceived safe and quick travel on two wheels, uh, most people aren't comfortable riding. And you mentioned even earlier on the, on the show that most people aren't comfortable. To, these aren't about people riding today. That, mm-hmm. that It's about people that aren't. And, you know, I, I mean, I, like I said, my commute is, is a little over three miles and that seems like in range, but a lot of people live a little farther away. So wh- what is the big thing happening in the bike industry that's going to extend the range mm-hmm. of people commuting? That's, I love that, extending the range. Um, well, short answer, electric bicycles. Um, they're absolutely part, you know, a huge part of the future of bike tr- bikes for transportation and recreation too, but we'll focus on transportation today. Um, e-bikes for those listening who don't know are bicycles with an electric, a low speed electric motor and battery, um, that for the most part kick in as you pedal or with a small throttle. And when you get on one, that motor is going to help you get up to about 20 miles per hour. And then it's all pedal power afterwards. And some class three, we have a class system, will get you up to 28 miles per hour. Um, and so what that assist does is, I mean, there's no better way to say it than it just changes the game. Um, and that's what we see every time someone gets on an e-bike for the first time and realizes the utility that it offers them in getting from point A to B, whether that's home to school to work, dropping off kids at school on the way to work, e-cargo bicycles that have the capacity to put a couple kiddos in the back um, or throw some- Or groceries for delivery. Right. Yeah. Or doing delivery um, you know, mm-hmm. at scale for an operations or delivery company is a huge part of this sector. Um, and I think pairing the technology, like the hardware of the e-bikes with the software of a safe system of getting around is, is going to be 
um, I mean, where we've seen it succeed, it's really succeeded. But um, what I also want to point out too, is that there are studies even from the like federal government that show that most trips, most car trips are actually under six miles in the U.S. And, you know, maybe, maybe you're not ready to bicycle six miles and that is fine. But an e-bike, most people are going to, you know, if, if you're willing to try it, then you're willing to do it, I think is the way to, to do it. Because I am, um, I'll put it this way. I live in Washington, DC. I am very fortunate to have an e-bike that I use for getting around. I haven't owned a car in the city ever since I moved here. Um, and in August in DC, if you're familiar with what the temperature and the climate is like in August, I can still ride that e-bike to meetings, in my work clothes, to Capitol Hill. Um, and I'm barely sweating. And that's, I mean, again, if you know DC in August, you know that's mm-hmm. some kind of feat. So that's a pretty magical tool that you can use to get around your community um, and, and do so with ease without having to worry about hills, distances, getting home, cargo, all of that stuff. Yeah, I feel you. We we don't have the hills in in mm-hmm. Metro Detroit, but uh, we we get the heat in the summer as well, and and we've got the cold in the winter mm-hmm. where you gotta definitely gear up, and you don't want your your heavier pants getting caught in the the chain mm-hmm. as you're just kind of crushing. So I, I definitely feel like there's um, a lot of value that e bike brings to be that game changer that you're talking about, and. Once that, again, like we talked earlier about, like once we have those connections where there is that pathway where people are safe and feel safe, mm-hmm. then um, then the e-bike becomes, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy where you start to see that, that usage increase. Mm-hmm. And uh, Europe is ahead of us in the U.S. when it comes to bike infrastructure and, and e-bike usage, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they've always been. Uh, but yes, definitely with you know miles of bike infrastructure, safe, protected bike infrastructure and e-bike sales. But um, you know, now there's research showing or data at least showing that e-bike sales are outnumbering electric vehicle sales in the U.S., which was the case. You know, that was like a, a headline out of Germany a few years ago. Um, and so the fact that we're catching up in the sales space, at least, is um, pretty exciting because, as you know, the more people buy them, the more they're going to use them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So uh, as we begin to kind of wrap up a little bit, I, I, I'm curious about where you see the future of policy heading, because I got to say, like you and I have been on calls for years now for starting with this, like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm working on cars and bikes, you know, we should be talking. And, and um, uh, Jen Dice was super cool to be supportive on the early days. And, and Noah, that's how, how you and I ended up uh, connecting and, and staying in touch and starting to get involved in some some GR topics, uh, government relations topics. And it definitely feels like now that the industries are aligned on more green paint and, and bipartisan safety efforts for all of the road users, what do you see on the horizon for the next few years? I mean, do you have any, I don't want to say like, obviously there, there's no crystal ball, but do you have any predictions for what sort of topics or things that you're going to be seeing, even if we don't know how the outcome is going to be? What, what, what should we expect for let's say the next like year or two, next you know, 12 to 24 months? Well, I can certainly say what we're working on and what we'd like to see in the next you know, year or two. Um, we, I think People for Bikes, even before my time, has done a really great job at laying the groundwork of e-bike policy specifically. And like I mentioned before, e-bikes are really going to be a huge part of the future of bike transportation and policy is going to match that. 
So we're at the point where now a majority of states, I think it's 37 states, recognize the three-class definition of e-bikes that we don't need to get into here. But basically what it does is, is ensure that e-bikes are not considered motorcycles in your state, so you don't have to license and insure it, and you can ride it just like a bicycle. Uh, so now that that foundation's been set, what we're seeing truly explode this year in state legislatures um, is a focus on incentivizing e-bike purchasing, riding, procure- procurement for businesses, um, commuting, um, and including bicycles too, not just electric bicycles. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that, I have to give credit um, to the e-bike act at the federal level that we were helpful in in bringing that to life from Congressman Panetta and Blumenauer. Um, this was a, a bill to establish a federal tax credit for electric bicycle purchases while it's passed the House as part of Build Back Better. Obviously, that's been stalled in the Senate, but I think a lot of state lawmakers saw that, were inspired and realized mm-hmm. that bikes aren't just toys. And of course, so much ridership happening over the pandemic. Um, there, there's so many things that go into this cocktail of, of good biking, but um, mm-hmm. part of you know seeing that at the federal level, an increase in temporary and pop-up bike infrastructure, bringing communities together. Now state lawmakers and city officials are realizing that by incentivizing their communities to ride bikes more often um, and to use e-bikes to do that, they're going to meet so many other goals that they have um, for their communities. And so we've just seen uh, so many bills being introduced to get new incentives off the ground for purchasing, riding, commuting, all of that. I think we're going to see a lot of businesses really take off with purchasing fleets of e-bikes and e-scooters and everything like that um, for their operations, whether that's delivery workers or municipal workers or things like that. Um, And you're going to see policy try to catch up and support that um, as we see all the benefits coming. Um, And, you know, ideally infrastructure is just a never ending policy effort. Like, we can always have more and it can always be better when it comes to bike infrastructure and keeping VRU safe. So the more concrete barriers and the more data we have to see where those people are and where we can support them better, that's what we're going to be fighting for in a policy sense at People for Bikes. Love it. And I, I got to tell you that just the it just dawned on me that like having more incentives for e-bikes just makes it even that much more affordable for people to be getting around. And also it's probably going to clear up some of those parking spaces that are so hard to find in big cities. And we're starting to see that, that stress in the suburbs now, especially as less people are commuting into the office every day. So Mm -hmm. um, I, I could not agree with you more on this and this is fantastic. Uh, no, I want to thank you for having uh, having your time on the show today. Uh, where can where can we learn more about People for Bikes and some of the work? And I will include those links in the description you mentioned earlier. But for more information about uh, what you guys are up to, where, where should people go to, to check out? Um, so I'll first plug our our Twitter account for our policy work specifically. It's at PFB Policy, um, and uh, you could take a guess at who's behind it. And it's where I share all of the work that we're doing to advance um, bike policy at every level across the country. Um, But 
beyond that, you know, on our website, you can sign up for email updates so that you know when it's time to take action and, and send a letter to your member of Congress and your senators in support of important bills and, and policies. And I should mention at the state and local level too, not just the federal level. Um, we send a, a pretty robust action alert program when we're, we're trying to move things across the finish line. Um, and then I always have to make a plug for your local bike advocacy organization. You know, when it, when it comes to the issues in your backyard, they're going to know what's happening, um, obviously, more closely than we will as a national organization. Um, and we do our best to support those calls to action when we can. So get involved in a local advocacy organization. Follow us on Twitter at PFB Policy. Um, and of course, you know, my, my inbox is probably a little too open, but you're always welcome to reach out any listeners who have questions about how to get involved. Um, and I would love to chat. Noah Bunyan, Director of Federal Affairs for People for Bikes. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. Thanks again for listening. See you next time in the bike lane.